Welcome to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. To get free mentoring services, as well as to see the wide variety of resources available for small businesses, visit our website at www.score.org or call 1-800-634-0245. And now, here's your host, Dennis Zink. Episode number 32, Pricing for Profit. Fred Dunnier joins me today in our studio as co-host, SCORE mentor, and our audio engineer. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Dennis. Our guests today are Jack Rissay and Mike Lewis with SCORE in Pasco and Hernando Counties, Florida. Welcome to Been There, Done That. Hey, thanks, Dennis. Appreciate being here. Dennis, nice to be here. Jack Rissay is a SCORE certified mentor, a Navy veteran, and entrepreneur. In his initial entrepreneurial venture, he developed one of the first automated pharmacy prescription systems in the country. Having spent over 10 years in corporate America as Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing, he then returned to entrepreneurship. He founded a medical dealership and distributorship specializing in MRI-related equipment and patient immobilization devices for radiation therapy. He founded the Scorpinellus Veterans Initiative specifically to help aspiring veteran entrepreneurs start, grow, or buy a business. Mike Lewis is the chapter chair, a certified mentor of SCORE in Pasco and Hernando counties, Florida. He was an entrepreneur in the medical distribution business and a principal of a sales motivation and training company. Jack, what do you mean by pricing for profit? It's an interesting question. Uh, many small businesses that we encounter as we go forth with our SCORE efforts um, are starting a business without um, much thought about pricing. And when you ask them, how do you price your product or service, they seem to pull it out of the air and they really don't know what pricing for profit really means. And what it comes down to is that they have to know their costs, both variable and fixed, and can apportion a, a part of the fixed cost to their overall structure. And then figure out what their pricing needs to be. And then there's a whole host of things that they need to do to make sure that that pricing makes sense. And we can talk about all these different issues related to that as we go forward. But pricing for profit, if you just arbitrarily put, put a price on your product or service and don't know what your costs are, you're you're really uh, having a, a a hard go at it because you don't know how much money you're making. Jack, can you go into a little more detail as to what you mean by what is a variable versus a fixed cost? Okay, the easiest way to say that is fixed cost is typically related to overhead, things like your executive salaries, your rent, your insurance, bank loans that you pay statically every month. The variable costs are those related to whether you're making a product or service, the things that vary on a basis every month, your your number of pieces that you might get, um, the various things that change. And, and I can't be specific because if you're looking at a service-oriented business versus a product-oriented manufacturing business, the variations will, will, will be quite different, quite different. Doesn't the market um, and or the competition actually determine what your pricing should be? Uh, interesting question. There are many pricing strategies. And when we started talking about pricing, I said people typically arbitrarily pick a price that they think the market will bear. One of the ways of, of calculating what price you should have is called competitive pricing. So you get to know your competitors and you see what they're pricing their product or service at, and you match that in hopes that you'll be able to gain some business. 
matching that doesn't mean you can make a profit with that price because the competition may have something on you that you don't know about in the sense that their cost may be significantly lower and hence they have a price and your costs are higher and you price to match the competition and you wind up losing money and you don't know why. So it is a form of a pricing strategy, but you need to be careful as to how you arrive at that. Jack, um, how does a uh, company take into uh, account what's going on with online uh, pricing today versus uh, somebody who may be in a retail situation? Well, if you're looking at online pricing, you have to do your research like you would if you were uh, researching a competitive uh, retailer. You have to look at who's offering what, what is the product, is it similar, do they charge for shipping, what are the advantages that they have that you might not have, and how do you adjust yours to compete with that. Online, you're you're talking globally because you could be dealing with someone from France or Sweden or someplace like that, not only in the USA. If you're a retailer, you're, you're typically looking at more of a geographically local type of environment. So it really depends on what you're doing, but you need to do your research to find out how they're arriving at their pricing and what are they offering for that price and how can you meet that or beat that. Jack, what's the difference between markup and margin? People often confuse those two. It's an interesting question too. Um, as you market your product, there are things that you need to look at, like we just talked about all of the costs. You need to know what your costs are. Um, your markup percentage is gross profit dollars divided by your cost of your goods sold. And the difference between that, that's how much you mark up your product in order to hopefully gain a profit margin. Well, the profit margin is different than what your markup is. Your profit margin is arrived at by taking gross profit dollars divided by sales dollars. Okay, so if you have a 20% markup, that doesn't mean you have a 20% margin. You may mark it up 20% and only have a 4% margin. So you need to understand the difference of the two. And the markup is not something that you should really look at uh, to try to arrive a margin. You should back it up and say, how much margin do we need to make? And what then price do we need to have in order to reach that margin? And how competitive is it? And what are my differentiators that will allow me to have that price? I believe in the restaurant industry, they have a, a, a number that's a standard that the food cost can only be about 30% of the sales price of an item on the menu. So would that be a margin? No, the food cost at 30%, they know what they allocate for their costs. Okay, then they take a look at what services are they offering. If it's an upscale restaurant, they can command a higher price, therefore a higher margin than can a family restaurant that doesn't have the niceties or the service quality of service that you would get in an up more upscale place. So as a rule of thumb, if you just take 30% of your cost across the board, you still have to look at what are you offering? What are your differentiators and what kind of facility do you have versus the competition? So if I was running a, a family restaurant that typically is breakfast and lunch and not dinner, and I'm trying to price my lunches at what dinner rates are in a, in a more upscale restaurant, would you come to my restaurant? The answer is no. What profit margin should a business try to achieve and does it depend on the kind of business? It does depend on the kind of business and it depends on your competition. Um, a very important aspect of any business is what is your differentiator or differentiators? How do you set yourself aside and why would a person want to buy from you versus buy from your competitor? Okay, so there's no set 
way to arrive at a profit margin. Like we just said, restaurants typically have a 30% cost factor. Well, they typically don't have a 40% margin factor. No one has set, I want a 40% margin factor because I'm in this industry. They take a look at all the things that you need to know, not only competition, but what is the, what will the market bear? How much is, is the average person willing to pay for your product or service? And how does that measure up compare, competitively? And are you able to compete and make, make money at that price? Okay, if you do that, if you look at what that comes out to be for a price and you understand what your costs are, now you know what your margin percentage is and can it be profitable because now you know what your costs are and you look at it and say, okay, if we sell in number of these services or products, we can make enough money. It seems like that's a calculation that ought to be done before you even start the business. Absolutely. It's called a business plan. Speaking about calculations, what about people who are going to business that have the cliche, I'll make it up in volume? What do you think about that? <laughs> Excuse me for laughing. <laughs> you can't lose five cents on everything that you sell and make it up in volume because you're still making losses. <laughs> Unless you're Amazon, in which case you take big losses on the expectation that you're building a market and that people will become married to you at some point, and then you can start making some money with it. You must have very deep pockets to begin with. Indeed. There are certain uh, industry publications that probably uh, have articles from time to time about what the range of profits are in those industries. Um, would you suggest that as a good source for uh, different kinds of businesses, if there are such publications or trade shows or trade magazines? Absolutely. Uh, industry dynamics and, and industry publications, uh, there's a lot of data available if one were to do the research. And that's what we talk about in your business plan. If, if you were to write a business plan for your business, whether you before you start it or after you've started it, you need to have that business plan, which forces you to do the research. And to do the research, you're going to come across an industry standard somewhere. If you look at the publications that are available and you find out in your industry average what it is, and if your pricing and your margin are not com comparable to that, you need to question yourself as to why and go back to your business plan and see where the costs are and where your margins are. And by the way, we had a presentation from a local librarian uh, at our SCORE chapter here not long ago. And they talked about the resources that are there in the library for helping you to do that research. There's a lot of market analysis. You'd be surprised at the different resources that are available at the library to help you do this research. That's very, very accurate because uh, most of the larger branch libraries have a research department. So you just go to them and, and they're, they're more than willing to help you. Can you comment on the psychology of pricing? Yes, the psychology of pricing we've all experienced. When you look at uh, things that are priced at twelve ninety five versus versus thirteen dollars or thirteen and a quarter, where the margin would be a little better for the company, they're trying to get you psychologically to think that it's a lower price. But you did ask uh, previously about value, and people like to buy value for what they're paying for. If you they perceive that they're getting good value for their dollar, they'll buy it. And I'll give you a good example of something. There was a perfume company that was, uh, they had a $10 bottle of perfume that they were offering in places like uh, discount stores and so forth. And the executive management said, you know, we think we can get a better price if we package this differently. And they took the same perfume, put it in a different bottle, put it in a really ritzy type of package and put it on the, on the market for 100 bucks a bottle. And they put it into the upscale stores and took it out of the discount stores. 
and they found that people were buying it because it's a perceived value at $100 versus 150 that the other ones were getting. And, and as such, people will pay for something that they perceive as a good value to them. As a wine drinker, um, it's interesting if you compare sometimes uh, a more expensive bottle of wine, say $60, $70 versus maybe a $15 bottle of wine. And a friend of mine had a really interesting comment. He says, I want to drink a wine, buy a wine that tastes better than it costs. I always like that phrase. Uh, let me ask you this. The, uh, we have, um, uh, a, it used to be called Robert Morris Associates. It's now called RMA. They kept the same three letters. And RMA is a, uh, a source that bankers use to see what profit margins exist in different industry classifications. So do you recommend that a... Uh, someone know their NAICS code, NAICS code, and look up and see what kind of margins uh, are typical of the industry. Absolutely right. I think they should. In in doing the research to create your plan and get your business started, you need to know what the industry commands, what you're able to get. If the industry says, for example, that the typical gross margin is is 20%, and you're marking your stuff up so that you're going to get a 40% margin, you're not going to be competitive unless you've got really a significant differentiator. And we talked about value, that if the perception that I'm getting value from my dollar, then you have a chance. But you've, your marketing dollars are going to go up because you're going to have to educate the public as to what value you're offering for that price. By the way, I think the uh, RMA now stands for Risk Management Association. So I just wanted to clarify that because if people want to look it up online, they probably ought to know Risk Management Association. Oh, yeah. Thank you for Adding that. Okay. So um, that helps to figure out how much to charge, and, that, and that's a great thing. Um, how can I know what the industry metrics are and dynamics in terms of any other uh, things? You had Fintel, BizMiner, et cetera. I, I'm not really familiar with that. Can you explain what that is? You know, those are websites that you can do some business intelligence research on, like we talked about industry associations and so forth. Well, these are sites that are subscription sites. I believe you have to pay for the data. But they have a lot of data based on NAICS codes and your type of industry that you're in so that you can get a better feel for where you fit within that organization or that industry, I should say. And and when you set your price and you know your cost, then you see if you're going to be competitive and you may come in at a lower price and you may be able to command more market share. So it really depends. If you don't do your homework, you don't know where you're going to go. And what would those sites be? Is it .com? Can you spell those so for our listeners? Fintel.com and bizminer.com. And that's F-I-N-T-E-L and B-I-Z-M-I-N-E-R. Correct. Okay. And there are others as well. I mean, you, you can you can search around and find. As a matter of fact, if you ask your librarian in the research department, they'll probably give you a few more to look at. And what's your opinion on having a loss leader? Does that help to bring people in the store or, or just <clears throat> is that worth doing or is that a, a zero deal? I think loss leaders need to be carefully examined by the particular organization that's using it. Um, if you've got deep enough pockets, uh, people will oftentimes, depending on the product or service, take advantage of a loss leader and buy nothing else. The intent of a loss leader is to get you into the facility or get you into the site to buy the, not only that, but to see other things that you'll buy on a, on a, on a ad hoc basis, you just you know, impulsive basis. And if people are buying a loss leader and nothing else, uh, you, you got to be able to absorb those. And you typically shouldn't sell a loss leader, even though it's named as a loss. You're taking a loss on it. I think you should sell it at, at your raw cost. 
we all have seen situations where a company will do a loss leader and only have one of the item and in effect create a stampede. You know, we, we've seen those kind of things happen around Black Friday. Obviously, that's a very dangerous strategy. And I would think that it's not good for the business's reputation to have a loss leader and only have one of those items in stock. A, it's not a loss leader in that particular scenario. It's a, a strategy that's based on a discrimination, I'll call it. Uh, discrimination pricing can be based on store hours. If you're in the store between 9 a.m. and 10.30 p.m., you can get these products at these prices. Or if you're a senior citizen over the age of 65 and show your ID, you can get these products at these prices, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a, necessarily a lost leader. It's dis- discriminating pricing. I'm sorry. Jack, do you think that the use of lost leaders um – uh, are good or bad for your business based on the fact that if you only have one item that will kill your reputation, uh, it would make pe- people angry? I think if you're using lost leader and you only have one item, uh, that could hurt your business. But rather than to do that as a lost leader, do it as um, discrimination pricing, where you're saying if you're in the store, it's very quick. It's going to be a half hour only at this price. And only while supplies last. Now, no one knows you only have one. And when it goes out the door, you say, sorry, supplies are gone and or the one didn't go in that half hour. You've tried it and you not hurt your, not hurt your business. The old blue light special. Correct. I thought of that too. <laughs> but the um, continuing this discussion, uh, the use of a lost leader should really go into your marketing plan uh, as a part of your business plan and not so much your financial plan. Well, as your marketing plan, if you're planning a year ahead with lost leaders, uh, God bless you. Uh, most lost leader things that I know about are things that are not moving within a, a particular store, and you, you're looking for a way to garner revenue from people buying other things and using that particular product or service as a lost leader to get people to look at other things. So if you're planning a year and ahead to take a loss on something, I want to talk to you as a score mentor because you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Let's talk about internet pricing for a moment. I think to some extent uh, you're going to see the death of brick and mortar in the next five to ten years. Businesses that have a, a place to go to, to shop at, if you can get those same products, if they're commodity products, to get them online, typically I would think you can get better pricing. Would you agree with that? And do you think that'll have repercussions in terms of failure, business failure as it relates to brick and mortar stores? Well, I think in today's market, um, buying online is not a panacea unless you can get free shipping. Because if you look at shipping costs, typically they're exorbitant. FedEx and UPS, uh, if you look at buying a product online, they charge you more than if you were just to be a standard UPS or FedEx shipper. And I was that in my own business, so I know what the prices are and the discounts that they get. So they're making money on the shipping. And the latest trend is to say free shipping. Okay, if you can get free shipping buying online and the price is worth it, and you know what you're buying because of color and size and things like that with clothing, it's a little bit iffy unless you really know what you're looking at. Uh, And then returns come into being, and if you have to return it, they don't pay for shipping on the return. You pay for shipping on the return and take something to the post office in a box and see how much it costs you to ship it. So so what you make up in, in price, buying it without good knowledge of what you're doing, you're probably going to wind up spending more because it's going to cost you more and you're going to be without the product or, or service. There's one very successful uh, group called Zappos, which probably most people are familiar with, Z-A-P-P-O-S. 
and they do pay for returns. They do pay. They'll send you six pair of sneakers in different colors that you asked for, and you can keep whatever you want or not and send it back, and they pay for the round trip. It's an interesting concept. I don't know how long that will last and how many retailers would be able to afford to do that. Think about it. If Zappos sends you six pair of shoes, those are five pair of shoes that may come back at, that are out of circulation for that period of time. So they're, they're stocking a lot more inventory than they need. They're doing something right. I think Dennis has a, an interesting point, though, and, and he, he actually referred to it when he talked about commodity items. It's one thing if you're buying a book or something that maybe uh, you, can, you can tell just from the cover what it is and buy that versus something where you're going to have to judge quality or do something like that. So I think brick and mortar is in trouble when it comes to commodity items, but that for specialty items where you actually need to touch the product to know what you want to buy, uh, that's going to work. I bought a device called the Amazon Echo. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's basically a, a, a little cylinder that's got some microphones in it, and it links to Amazon over the Internet. I've, in the past, purchased dog food, and now I can w- walk up to this device sitting from my couch and say, and I won't use the word because if somebody has one of these homes, it's going to turn theirs on, but I'd say, in effect, Amazon, order me a bag of dog food it will tell me what I ordered last time and ask me, is this what I want? And I say yes, and it places the order. With Amazon Prime, it shows up two days later at my door. So, I mean, that's that shopping experience, especially with, with Prime where you've got two-day ship, two-day delivery, it's going to be hard for brick and mortar to queue up with. That's impressive. And, and you know, Amazon is now, if you heard through the holidays, where they were had two-hour delivery. And they're looking at drone delivery, which could be in minutes. I'm not sure I'd want my sushi delivered that way, but uh, then again, if it was done in minutes, maybe I, maybe I would have it with a little wasabi and ginger. Yeah, there's no argument that brick and mortar is going to change for sure, but there's going to be that element of people that still want to go into someplace. You leave their house and, and go out to shop and to touch and feel things and look at it. Look, look at women going into a retail place and I happened to do this with an old place in Boston, Massachusetts called Filene's Basement. If oh, you've yeah. ever heard of that. Oh, sure. yeah. I used to stand there. My wife would go around. I'd stand there with my arms folded and just watch people. And, and they would go touch and feel and hold it up and see if they looked at it, look at the mirror. You can't do that online. You have to know what you're doing. And if Zappos is willing to send you a whole bunch of stuff, you can probably look at that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I see people shopping and they... They do that. They touch and feel the products, but they also pull out their iPhone or their their smartphone, and they start looking up prices and brands and trying to see what what this costs. It's kind of interesting. The buying experience is totally different than it used to be. Exactly right, Jack. A lot of um, businesses today are doing dual business, where they're doing retail and they may be doing internet. They all have websites. Do you think people are really taking into consideration the different psychologies of marking up a product or having margin, uh, and is that important? Um, I don't know how important it is. I've never taken a look at that uh, from a research perspective to see what value it might bring. But uh, most retailers already offer an online service with their products. Um, How they're priced, I have honestly not looked at that either, but my guess would be they'd be very similar. My point is that perhaps businesses should take a look at their margins given the different cost factors of doing business on the internet, shipping out versus somebody just walking in the store. Absolutely. 
You know, one of the things, um, getting back to Laura, looking at pricing strategies in the marketplace, if you could, you know, maybe go over some of those, maybe the key ones, and uh, and talk about those. The most commonly, <clears throat> excuse me, the most commonly used pricing strategy is called cost plus, and that's what we talked about knowing your cost and. Most businesses don't really know their costs because they haven't written a business plan and they haven't put down their fixed and variable costs that we discussed earlier. And they don't know what the competition is doing. And the other part of it is they don't know what the market will bear. There's market pricing as well as cost plus, And that has to be considered because market pricing means that you go out and pre-test what the people are willing to pay for your product or service. And if it fits within the price structure that you think and you come back and measure it against your cost to find out you can make money at doing it, then you can go forward. If the people say no, and I call these focus groups, and I recommend to many of my SCORE clients that they set up a focus group, not made up of friends or family, but of people that they've, they've either met somewhere or go out and solicit and ask them to participate as a focus group. And you be prepared by asking a whole series of questions to learn about what these people are willing to pay for your product or service. So they need to understand what that is. And you come away from that with a host of information that you can, you can know how you want to proceed and even if you should proceed. Pricing strategies are numerous. And there's skimming. And we all know what the, the skimming thing is. You see that we talked about earlier. I called it discriminatory pricing. It's something is is available for a brief period of time with a price and something new. Apple is great at this. Something is coming out and they price it and they get the early adopters that stand in line for hours waiting to get this first product. And what happens after that? That goes, the production happens and the prices fall and it becomes more of a, not a commodity item, but more acceptable to the general public. But that's skimming. And there, there's all kinds of different strategies that you can use, but the common ones are cost plus, and the most important one, in my opinion, is using the cost and finding out what the market will bear along with your competition. You know, restaurants often will have three different prices, let's say, on a bottle of wine or a type of wine. And is there a reason they do that? In other words, are they expecting to like sell maybe the middle one or the cheapest one? Or why would they do that? I don't know their expectations, but I think it relates to their cost and or what they feel they can make as a margin. If, for example... You show three different bottles of wine, and I'll pick Chardonnay because I like Chardonnay when I typically have dinner because I have fish. You look at the, at the wine list, and you see something that's $15, $28, $35, something of that nature. And they're all Chardonnays, but they're all different, different labels. Okay, so not being a connoisseur, I don't know what that means, which label might be better in terms of aging or quality. Um, but for me, after I have a glass of wine, the second glass of wine doesn't really make a difference whether it's good, better, or different. <laughs> then, then we're back to buying a wine that tastes better than it costs. <laughs> yeah. So my point is that um, how do they tell that? If the, if the buyer in that store is clever enough to be able to get those bottles within a very small markup percentage uh, or dollar rate, you know, if he pays $10 for one bottle and, and $10.50 or $11 for the bottle that they're charging $7 more for, God bless them. They're making the money. That's, that's where they make their money. It's, it's interesting that we talk about uh, that perceived price versus the, the actual price, for example. If I go out to a, a website and I'm looking at a product, and that product has all five-star reviews versus one that's mediocre, three, three and a half stars, and the, the price could almost be double. 
but I'll still go for that five-star product unless it's like ridiculously expensive simply because I now have the feedback as to the quality of that product. How much more it costs the manufacturer to make that better product, I don't know, but I know that I want the product that's, that's rated well, that's more likely to last longer and all those other factors. See, but that helps in your perceived value. Remember we talked about the bottle of perfume? The perceived value to you is because other people have tasted it. Well, your taste buds could be totally different. Okay, what might taste good to someone might not be so good for the other one. Um, a restaurant is a prime example. I've been to a restaurant, going into a restaurant with people coming out and say, how was it? They said, oh, it was fantastic. And I go in and I have something and I, my God, it was terrible. <laughs> One thing we discussed during this entire conversation is the usefulness and the critical use of a business plan. You've mentioned that a number of times, and we at SCORE emphasize that over and over and over again. The, uh, the pricing strategies, the markup margin strategies should be a part of the financial plan within your overall business plan. Uh, SCORE emphasizes that, and that's a very, very important factor. It is, absolutely. And any clients that I have, I make sure we cover all of that stuff. So, Jack, is there anything we didn't cover in this discussion that uh, you would want to either cover or reemphasize? It's important that you pay attention to what your gross profit margins are and you control those. And it's not something that you price and stay static. You have to look at how you adjust your prices. Is your product in a particular life cycle? Is it in the beginning stage? Is it in the decline stage? Is it in the intermediate stage? And you have to understand what each of those product life cycle stages are and price your product accordingly. So you can maintain your margins and not, not just be sitting uh, like a lump. Jack, thank you for enlightening us today. Michael, thank you as well on pricing for profit. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. The opinions of the hosts and guests are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of SCORE. If you would like to hear more podcasts, get a free mentor, view a transcript of this podcast, or would like more information about the services we provide, you can call SCORE at 800-634-0245 or visit our website at www.score.org. Again, that's 800-634-0245 or visit the website at www.score.org.